All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for this morning, for a day to fellowship together as family in the unity of the faith. We thank You, Father, for a place to worship in peace and quiet and a time to learn Your precious Word in the very mind of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the bread of life. For He is the light, and He came into the world to reveal Himself as Messiah. Yet, as Your Scripture states, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So we pray, Father, for those still struggling in this world, especially those of the faith. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is consistent. The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 86. Last week, we revisited a verse that's been showing up incrementally in our studies now for some time. Up here on the board, I'll give you the message because I like the language. James 4, 6, Part B in the message, God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing humble. God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing humble. Willful implies full of human will, which points to the flesh. The willful proud, that is the fleshly individual, which points to the flesh, doing if you would, whereas willing implies not already full, but open to being filled, which points to the humble. So keep this distinction at the forefront of your minds as we look at the Scripture that we began with on Thursday, which in the absence of verbal plenary Scripture, that means the whole of the Bible, and certainly to an unbeliever, presents a seeming paradox. Go to Philippians 2.12. So we'll look at this again. Philippians 2.12 and 13 present what we might call out as a seeming paradox, and it certainly is to an unbeliever, but it shouldn't be for us. As I've taught you, when theology is presented to us, we just accept it by faith, and that's what we need to do here. Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Obviously, the individual is front and center there. There's an issue of volition in view. So first, we have our own involvement in our sanctification. I mean, we're still on the topic of experiential sanctification in our primary course of study up here in the board. So we have an involvement in this concept of experiential sanctification. Paul uses the language, work out your salvation, it refers to your involvement in sanctification. 
Sanctification is salvation come alive in you. It is living in the gospel reality. It is realizing God's eternal love for you. All of these things are part of this thing. You do so with fear and trembling in awe of and respect for all he's done. That's what's encapsulated, if you would, in this statement. Work out your salvation. So it's undeniable, in other words, that believers have a role to play in this thing called sanctification. So the undeniable scripturally supported fact is that believers actually do play a role in their own sanctification. However, now listen, the key is to understand the willingness, remember the willing humble, the key is to understand the willingness to do so. As a result, do not leave this out, the willingness to do so, as a result of what God has already done in them. Let me say it again. The key is to understand the willingness to do so. You do have a role to play in your own sanctification. But do not get legalistic or religious about it. Know that God has changed you. So you willing to do this thing is a result of the fact that God has already done something in you. So concentrate. As we just noted in James 4.6, the fleshly person accomplishes things via willful pride of the human will, if you would. However, as we also noted, the humble person accomplishes things via willing humility, by the grace of God. Now, in all fairness, even that sounds a little bit abstract and theological, and it is. It is. I mean, what does it mean? God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a bit abstract, isn't it? There's a bit left for interpretation. So what does it mean practically? I mean, what, we are actually trying to learn about living the spiritual life here, right? I mean, what does this mean practically? That God gives grace to the humble that he's opposed to the proud. So, here's the key. And it's the linchpin to truly understanding experiential sanctification. I'm going to give you three principles that really are a bit of a summary work of our lessons as of late, and even all the way back to September, frankly, because all of this is connected. Regarding experiential sanctification, let me give you these things. First, by grace, God changes us. By grace, He's made us new creatures in Christ. We have new natures that are perfect. Therefore, can only do His good will. We have new natures that are perfect. Therefore, can only do His good will. The new us is willingly humble and supernaturally fellowships with God, making our fruit-bearing a collaborative joint labor. So that's point number one. And again, this is summary of all that we've been learning as of late regarding experiential sanctification. By grace, God changes us. We have to understand that. Paul says, 
but by the grace of God I am what I am. By grace, He's made us new creatures in Christ. We have new natures that are perfect, therefore can only do His will. The new us is willingly humble and supernaturally fellowships with God, making our fruit-bearing a collaborative joint labor. Next principle. To avoid assigning any creature credit in the production of divine good fruit in our lives, we simply refer back to Scripture, which says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, if He really has changed you and you're now doing things you didn't do, let's say, for Christ's namesake five years ago, it really is you doing it. But you're not responsible because He's the one who changed you. He's the one who qualified you after all. So to avoid assigning any creature credit in the production of divine good fruit in our lives, we simply refer back to Scripture which says, By the grace of God I am what I am, 1 Corinthians 15.10. God has qualified us to work with Him in Christ. And then finally, we are not somehow passive robots whose free will is merely an academic construct that God invented to appease our flesh's desire for independence. We are not passive robots. And God didn't say, here, here's some free will so your flesh is satisfied with its independence issues. At salvation, He literally changed us. It's because of that grace activity that we are able to join Him in accomplishing his will in time. And oh, by the way, we desire obedience. Obedience is one of the litmus tests along with love. If you have no desire whatsoever to obey God's commands, you're probably not saved. If you have no love, says John the Apostle in a multitude of places, even Jesus says it, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, that you love one another, you're probably not saved. So we shouldn't even be necessarily talking about experiential sanctification, but rather the gospel. But that's not you, assumably. Again, we are not somehow passive robots whose free will is merely an academic construct that God invented to appease our flesh's desire for independence. At salvation, He literally changed us. It's because of that grace activity that we are able to join Him in accomplishing His will in time. We desire obedience. Your flesh doesn't, but the new creature does. It's all it desires. And that's good fruit. This is the baseline perspective that the Spirit's been leading up to now for months, so please, frankly, if these are the only three principles you learned this morning, then by all means, so be it. Don't be laying down now. Okay. (laughs) Don't do that. I'm just saying, in terms of priority, this is what I want you to really take with you. And it really sets the stage for this morning's lesson, of course. Without you understanding these three statements, the rest of the lessons, plural, will remain incomplete, disjointed, possibly even a little confusing at times, just like that quote I gave you, not being able to put it back together. But, like I've taught you in the past, since God is not the author of confusion, 
1 Corinthians 14.33. Any confusion you might experience when faced with truth such as this is a remnant of something awry elsewhere in your soul. It's not God's fault, in other words, that you might be confused about something so simple. Grace is very simple. Very simple. And that's what bothers the flesh. So let's press on a bit. We've still got some more work to do on that particular passage. You're still in Philippians 2.12, right? All right, let's read it. So then, my beloved, just as you have uh, always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We've already noted this, work out your salvation, refers to your involvement in sanctification Sanctification is salvation come alive in you. It is living the gospel of reality. It is realizing God's eternal love for you. You do so with fear and trembling in awe of and respect for all that he's done. Now, given those three critical principles that we just noted, let's read the rest of this magnificently telling sentence. It's one sentence, remember, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you. Now, here's the paradox. First of all, we have something to say with it, but now God is at work in us as well, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So there you have it, the gist of experiential sanctification in the most practical of language. The most practical, practical of languages, yes, you have a part in it, and so does God. If that bothers you, well, you have a problem with God's plan. You have a, God, a problem with God himself. The fact that he can hold you responsible, but also take part in it and be the giver of grace. But that is in the most practical language, the gist of experiential sanctification. In verse 12, scripture states that we are individually responsible via our volition to God for the work we complete. Now, as a side note, this would be where the religious, legalistic, fleshly, creature-credit-seeking individuals would begin making their five-year plans to spiritual success. They'd say, see, I'm responsible for sanctifying myself. So I'm just going to go through the Bible, find all the commands, and just do them. doesn't matter about my heart. doesn't matter about what I'm thinking, where I'm at. doesn't matter what's going on. I'm just going to do them, and that's going to be pleasing to God. That's what a legalistic person would say. However, even though verse 12 reveals this individual responsibility, this willing humility of the true believer, it also reveals the supernatural nature of this calling juxtaposed to God's own will in the process. In other words, not to use fancy words there, the Word of God states also, that God works in and through His children to accomplish His will. So in one sense, in verse 12, you have a responsibility, but He never asks you to accomplish anything if grace hasn't what preceded it. He says, now that I've changed you, you have a responsibility, you are qualified, you are able to do this thing. It's just an issue of your volition at this point. And oh, by the way, I'm going to be right there with you working out my will for my own good pleasure. And this is all going to happen. So these, this passage also reveals the supernatural nature of this calling against or juxtaposed to God's own will 
in the process. In other words, the Word of God states also that God works in and through His children to accomplish His will. Now, just reflect on what we've learned so far, just to get things, you know, back together, big picture view, what's going on. First, He changes a believer, makes them able to receive His grace all the more. Changes the vessel itself, which is an act of supreme mercy, by the way. The Bible calls us vessels of mercy. Then, after He's changed you at salvation, He takes that changed vessel, even though it's still dragging around the, this body of death, as Paul called it in Romans 7.24. That's a reference to your body, your flesh. Even though he's changed the vessel and you're still dragging around this body of death, he empowers it to bear good fruit to his own glory. And that's what we might rightly call fruit of the Spirit. So despite the flesh, we are to identify with the new creature. That's why I say it's us, it's we. We are the new creature. That's how we're going to heaven. We're not taking this, thank God, this thing to heaven with us. We get a new resurrection body. Thank God. But we're still dragging around this thing, the bad roommate, that tempts us along with our other enemies. But with all that said, the Word of God says you still, if you're saved, will bear good fruit. Because in Philippians 1.6 he says, I will complete a good thing in you. How do I know? Because I changed you. I'm the author of grace. I give grace freely. So all of that, despite the body of this death, means that we may rightly produce or bear fruit of the Spirit. And friends, that's what grace looks like. It's that simple. It's right there in Scripture. We're going to work together with God. He's going to change us at salvation. And then He's going to make it happen. And that's literally... The practical side of grace. You don't have to be a PhD to understand it. If he says he's going to change you by grace, he will. If he says he's going to give you grace that saves you, that saved you before, he's going to sanctify you now, guess what? He will. That's not hard. See, the flesh doesn't like that. Flesh doesn't like simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Remember, Christ is grace and truth. If it weren't for God, then none of this would be possible. It's interesting because I always wonder why he would wake me up at 4.30 on a Sunday morning, right? And read half of a gospel in a sitting. Go to John 6.44. This was something that I read this morning. And this is after I just made the statement that if it weren't for God... None of this would be possible. You wouldn't be saved. You wouldn't be changed. You wouldn't be qualified. You wouldn't be able to take part even in your own sanctification. How would you work out your salvation with fear and trembling if you hadn't first been changed? Do you think that flesh is going to do it? Mm -mm. John 6.44, this is very interesting. Again, if it weren't for God, none of this would be possible. No one can come to me unless the Father 
who sent me, what? Draws him. Ooh. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, if God didn't, if God didn't choose you, and I don't want to get into the deeper aspects of election and theology and omniscience and foreordination and all these kinds of things, it's not important right now. Think big picture. God drew every believer. And if he doesn't draw you, you ain't coming. That's a fact. Think about that. Therefore, if it wasn't for God, if it weren't for God, none of what we just talked about in the first 20 minutes of class would be possible. He drew you to him. If you're truly a believer, then he drew you to him. You don't come to him unless he drew you to him. Did I say that? No. Red letters, right? Kind of hang our hat on that one. It's not Pastor Ed. That's Jesus Christ who said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, that means God has an active role in everyone's salvation. Makes total sense. You are, as the Bible clearly states, a permanent family member with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, because God Himself drew you to His Son personally. Later on, Jesus says what? My sheep hear my voice, and they what? Follow me. They hear these other schmucks. They don't follow them. They follow me. Well, who drew them to Jesus Christ? Certainly not their flesh. Their flesh hates the things of God. And that's all an unbeliever has. So how in, how in the world did that happen? It's supernatural. I'm going to draw it? I won't. I can't. But that's what Scripture says. And what has the Spirit been saying? If it says it in Scripture, then you have to believe it. New creatures like, cool, makes my life even easier. Flesh, oh, wait a minute, there's got to be, what? let me wrangle with this thing a little bit. Where's the horns on this beast? Get the rope. So you are a permanent member of his family because God himself drew you to his son personally. And how do we rest assured? Because his spirit tells us these things. Read 1 John. His spirit tells us that we're children of God. That we've been drawn to him. That we hear the voice of our Lord. So let's read what is arguably among the most beautiful descriptions of this eternal relationship in Scripture. And do not be surprised at who is speaking this to you this morning. It's the same beautiful person who sets you free. The same one that gave you the gospel. The same one who sent his helper, the Holy Spirit. And the same one who gave you the Great Commission. Go to John 15.1. John 15.1. And do not be a fool, my friends. Do not be a fool and pluck this beautiful passage of Scripture apart. 
Think about what He's trying to convey, your Lord, to you this morning. The intimacy of what it means to be in Christ, to be one of His sheep, to be called by God Himself. Do not be a fool and pick this thing apart. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, know you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I spoke, that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. When the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Isn't that beautiful? And you have to learn, folks, to read something like that. Just read it. Don't stop. 
Don't delight. Just read it. What was he trying to tell these, these individuals? Up here on the board, the vine and the branches in John 15 depicts the supernaturally wrought reality that is a believer's intimate relationship in and with their Savior. There is an eternal familial relationship established between our Lord and His disciples. And that's a beautiful thing. And that should never be tainted at all. This relationship is what helps explain our previous passage. Okay, go back to Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12. It helps us. It helps amplify what Paul's saying here. I mean, if Jesus is the vine and we are branches of that vine, that's about as intimate as it gets. We get our nutrients, right, from the vine. He's the bread of life. He feeds us. There's an intimate relationship. But yet we are branches that do what? Bear fruit to bring glory to God. So we actually have a role in this thing. And that's what Paul's getting at, just a different way. Jesus spoke in parable form. Paul spoke directly. Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Up here on the board, to will and to work. God doesn't merely desire that his children, quote, do his will. He changes them. He changes them so that they will to work for his good pleasure. Do you see the difference? In other words, Anybody can do, I can, get a, I can train a monkey to walk an old lady across the street. But that thing's not going to know anything except it's going to get a snack on the other side maybe. And now if you think God's throwing out, you know, goo, uh, what do you call them? Snoop, what was that guy's name from the, uh, Scooby Snacks, thank you. If he's handing out Scooby Snacks at the end of you walking an old lady across the street, you kind of get the wrong motivation. And God sees the heart. So God doesn't merely desire that His children do His will. He changes them so that they will to work for His good pleasure. This is one of the hallmarks of a true believer. Of course, a believer matures over time. You see more and more of this. That's the idea of a hallmark. This is one of the hallmarks of a true believer. Their new creature desires to please God. To will and to work for His good pleasure. You can't do that in your flesh. He has changed you. And if it's wood, hay, and straw, unless the attitude's right, then he must have changed your heart too. But what about my volition? What about your volition? Your volition has maybe been modified too because your heart has been changed. Because if you are just of the flesh like an unbeliever, the only thing you want to do is antagonistic to God or for self-serving purposes, which means you could walk a hundred old ladies across the street and it would mean nothing to God because your heart wasn't in it. Your heart has to be changed by God at salvation and then you desire to do those things for the right reasons. I'm not saying the flesh doesn't get involved and say, oh, I can get a little creature credit up in this one, right? I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But what Scripture tells us is that God changes us so that it will happen. What the frequency is, what the percentage, don't get all crazy with me. That's, not, that's between you and the Lord. That's a maturity issue. But the Bible does say, theologically, that it will happen. And the only way it could happen is if He actually did change you by grace. 
So this is one of the hallmarks of a true believer, a changed person. Their new creature certainly desires to please God. Let me give you a different translation before we move on in the Amplified. Philippians 2.12, So then, my dear ones, just as you have always obeyed my instructions with enthusiasm, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation, that is, cultivate it, bring it to full effect, actively pursue spiritual maturity with awe-inspired fear and trembling, using serious caution and critical self-evaluation to avoid anything that might offend God or discredit the name of Christ. And then verse 13, For it is not your strength, but it is God who is effectively at work in you, both to will and to work, that is, strengthening, energizing, and creating in you the longing and the ability to fulfill your purpose for His good pleasure. So before you run off and take credit, in other words, understand that God's behind all of this. That's grace. On Thursday, to help you out with this, I gave you a made-up parable. I call it the parable of the flower, for lack of a better term. If you didn't get it, well, get it. Here's the summary. Just like the flower and its growth is simply accomplished through God's grace, so goes the spiritual life. I mean... I was walking the dog this morning at 6 o'clock, and she's over there sniffing buttercups, right? As far as I know, it was just on the side of the road, and the buttercup's doing great, and nobody's touched it. It gets its nutrients from the ground. It gets the sun. Nobody's touching it. Along comes my dog and chews on it, but that's a different story, (laughs) right? The point is that those things were accomplished by God's grace. That is God's creation, right? That's the spiritual life. If we let it alone and we let Him pour out grace on us and we stop trying to wrangle it with our flesh, it's amazing what happens with our salvation and sanctification. That's why some people grow up spiritually quicker than others. It's a humility issue. Intellectual striving, though, is the antithesis of grace and it leads to bondage, not clarity. Freedom is afforded to those with the faith of a child. And as part of our study, Paul is often unfairly characterized as a maturity doctrine teacher, yet he stated plainly time and again that his priority was the gospel. He never used the term spiritual maturity, by the way. And we read Philippians 1 together, which was magnificent. And we saw the word gospel a multitude of times. We visited Philippians 1, speaking of it, multiple times now. So let's just grab the highlight reel. Go to Philippians 1.7. Philippians 1.7. What was the nature of Paul's ministry? He actually states it here in Scripture, Philippians 1.7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. And we spent some time on that phrase up here on the board, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This sums up. If you were to read, if you were to go home this afternoon and read all of Paul's epistles all at once, this is what you would see. He's either fighting tooth and nail or he's glorifying God by presenting the gospel in a, like a bouquet. 
He's saying, isn't this great? We're saved by grace. Isn't this fantastic? He sanctifies us by grace. Isn't this magnificent? Whoa, 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 you over here. Right? They're coming in. They're always trying to get it. We talked about this on Thursday night. What's the number one attack? Anti-grace. Take some of God's work and assign it to the flesh. That's religion or legalism 101. And that's what man has been doing for, since the, the... I mean, think about it. In the, I'm writing another book, by the way. I'm about three quarters done. Everybody's like, what? Three quarters done. Called a religion by another name. What are the first two religions? The perfect one and then the fallen one. What was the very first thing Adam and Eve did? Give me a fig leaf. I've got to cover myself up. I'm ashamed. That's man taking a piece of God's work upon himself. Number two religion, from then, that's what we've been trying to do ever since. Man's trying to rob God's grace, take credit for God's grace. That's what man does. That's what the flesh does. So it makes sense that Paul had to consistently, as the steward of God's grace, fight these battles. But when he wasn't fighting this battle against the gospel being perverted by anti-grace, he was taking and going, isn't this magnificent? Isn't this just wonderful? So in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, that guy goes by one more time and you go out there and throw him off his bike. <laughs> I'm serious, or I'm going to run out there. And I got flats on, and I got a torn meniscus. Might not be good for the rest of you. So who's voting for DJ? All right. Well, we might get our local boxer. I don't know if I can send Brian out. He'll probably punch the guy out. But good, I've been waiting for this. He's back there taping up. In the defense and confirmation of the gospel, this sums up the nature of Paul's ministry. He fought the good fight, 2 Timothy 4.7, to preserve the gospel complete and unstained. He preached by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, as the linchpin of a believer's confidence in Christ. He just wanted others to know Christ. If you look at Paul's heart, all of his epistles, he's either confirming or defending the gospel. Why? He says, all I want to know is him and him crucified. Do you, do you have the gospel? Can we rejoice now? Read Ephesians, you'll see a rejoicing apostle. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. First and 2 Corinthians, you know, 2 Corinthians 11, 3. He's battling it out with the knuckleheads. We also looked, again, at the book of Ephesians where it was evident that Paul spoke less defensively about the gospel than in some of his other disciples. Excuse me, others' uh, epistles. The book of Ephesians, there wasn't any primary point of contention in view. Therefore, Paul was free to expand upon the glories of the gospel in the lives of believers. It's a magnificent treatise on what living the gospel looks like in a church that hasn't been overrun by the flesh. Because that's what was going on in other churches. Look at First and Second Corinthians. It was always all some kind of strife or some kind of a problem that creeped in. John, uh, John to his first uh, epistle, right? Same thing. The Gnostics were coming in trying to intellectualize everything. Make things that, they weren't, that the gospel wasn't. After reading Ephesians 3 entirely, we concluded this. 
In his confirmation of the gospel, a la Philippians 1.7, Paul refers to grace a lot in the book of Ephesians. This makes total sense given the stewardship of God's grace was given to him to teach. Grace is the linchpin of the gospel. Hence, it was frequently extolled and defended by Paul and others. That's what we learned. That's what you'll see if you read the whole of Ephesians. What you should read when you read the book of Ephesians is the gospel come alive through grace. This is why, for example, Ephesians 2 contains that famous passage, verse 2, 8 and 9. It's because Paul is proclaiming the virtues of the gospel on the merits of God's grace through Christ Jesus. It's beautiful. That's the nice thing about Ephesians. There wasn't a whole lot of contention there. He's saying, this is the gospel by grace. Isn't this wonderful? You've been saved. You're sanctified by grace. All of this is by God's grace, just like we've talked about this morning. So we just read Ephesians 3 last class, and I encouraged you all to find a good introduction of the book in a study Bible. Hopefully you did that and read it. Let's read chapter 2 this time, and let's focus on the manner in which Paul extols grace to this group of believers. Go to Ephesians 2, 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Hey, maybe God, the Holy Spirit, knocked him off his bike. I don't hear him anymore. He's in the woods. What just happened? <laughs> Brian's like, darn it. Put the tape away, Brian. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And there's a famous passage, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near, by the blood of Christ. 
for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Again, up here on the board, the book of Ephesians, there weren't any or wasn't any primary point of contention in view. Therefore, Paul was free to expand upon the glories of the gospel and the lives of believers. It's a magnificent treatise on what living the gospel looks like in a church that hasn't been overrun by the flesh. So, in his confirmation of the gospel, because he's either confirming or defending it, a la Philippians 1.7, Paul refers to grace a lot in the book of Ephesians. This makes total sense, given the stewardship of God's grace was given to him to teach. Grace is the linchpin of the gospel, Hence, it was frequently extolled and defended by Paul and others. So, our reading of Ephesians has been the result of our primary course of study, namely, all the way out of the mine shaft now, to where we began this morning, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, that was Philippians 1.7. This sums up the nature of Paul's ministry. He fought the good fight to preserve the gospel complete and unstained, He preached by grace through faith. We just read that in context. As the linchpin of a believer's confidence in Christ. He just wanted others to know Christ. And what happens to you? What is sanctification? You know about Christ more. You learn more and more about how much God loves you. And how much He reveals Himself through Christ to you. As the Spirit's been teaching us in Scripture, the simplicity of the central doctrines in the Bible is offensive to the human flesh. In other words, your flesh hates the fact, hates what I've been teaching now for months, hates it, that it's, the spiritual life is really simple. Why? Because it loses all ability to stratify against the next person. That's why. The flesh is consumed by creature credit. The flesh is consumed by hyper-competitiveness. The flesh is consumed by wanting to be better than the next person. That's your flesh, and you all have one. And it's constantly nagging at you. You sure about that? seems too simple to me. seems too simple to me. I need some kind of works program. Make it a little bit more complicated so that my intellect can, you know, make me superior. 
than this person next to me. Sounds like a Pharisee, doesn't it? I thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy who's beating his chest. Have mercy on me. It's amazing what the flesh wants you to think about the spiritual life. So as he's been teaching us, the Spirit says the simplicity of the central doctrines in the Bible is offensive to the human flesh. As such, when tempted to do so, man will often challenge a lesson like this one, inventing one rationale after another as to why the spiritual life and experiential sanctification cannot be that simple. The flesh loves to invent. However, as Scripture reveals to us, and this is what he's been saying all morning, grace offends the flesh. If it's by God's grace, then it is simple. Salvation is simple, as is sanctification. Why? Because God does all the work. We just have to make good decisions. Get out of the way, maybe? Don't succumb to temptation of the flesh? Or some other enemy? That's our role in it. So if it's by God's grace, then it's simple. Salvation is simple, as is sanctification. Man is responsible for complicating things. It's not God's fault that the spiritual life is complicated or confusing to some. And you might say, oh, but I was poorly taught. Whatever. So? Did you ever read your Bible? Oh, gotta go. <laughs> yep, gotta go. Sorry, my alarm's going off. <laughs> Everybody's looking to the point fingers, of course, right? It's the bald guy's fault. Really? I think the Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Don't blame me. If it's by God's grace, then it's simple. Salvation is simple, as is sanctification. Man is responsible for complicating things. Some contend that the Bible ought to be thought of as something really difficult to read and understand. But in reality, Scripture tells us something very different. Scripture, you know, Holy Scripture, inspired Word of God Scripture. Just saying. 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not a God of confusion, of instability, confusion, disorder, tumult, disturbances. That's not our God. He doesn't offer those things. But of peace, welfare, peace, without disturbances. That's our God. As in all the churches of the saints. Hence our recent conclusions, striving for so-called spiritual maturity. It's an interesting thing, this definition of spiritual maturity. What is it? I think most people have it somewhere out in left field, and, but you're learning. If one's pursuit of so-called spiritual maturity is the cause for anxiety, angst, increasing confusion, etc., it is fair to say that it is ungodly by nature, fruit of the wrong nature, 
a.k.a. the old sin nature. You shouldn't, in other words, you should be able to read your own Bible like I did this morning and be elated and be set free and say there's nothing, and I literally said this to myself, there's nothing more beautiful than what's going on right now in my own soul. Nothing. But the flesh, oh, the flesh. Can't be that simple. It's got to be more complicated than that. I need religion. Give me a carrot. Give me a wheel. Right? I'll just... Suffering for Jesus. Anybody get that blog? Everybody's like, what blog? You You write blogs? Just remember this, what Scripture also says, Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying you and your ridiculous flesh want to complicate my grace. You want to hijack the spiritual life that I began in you at salvation. You want to do all these ridiculous things. When I'm telling you, it's that simple. It's not difficult. You don't have to work for salvation. You don't have to work for sanctification. I'm going to do these things in you by grace. The only thing you've been doing is getting in the way. Move over, Jesus. I got the wheel for a little while. You must be tired by now, right? God, I know you're a busy guy. Go spend some time on my neighbors. They're really bad, by the way. <laughs> right? It's unbelievable. Within the context of our lessons, the spirits got me set on what can only be called, in military terms, preemptive strikes. I hope you know what that means. Preemptive means to do something before something happens. That's what preemptive means. So he's got me in this sort of preemptive strike mode right now. Jesus used to do it. Paul used to do it all the time in his writing. And I have to do it as a shepherd. I think a good shepherd does that, you know. Looks across his sheep, and there's one over there. Right? The bad fruit's over there. He wants to go eat the bad fruit. Starts meandering all over there. What does the good shepherd do? Takes the rod and whacks it. Things like, okay, okay. That's the sheep. That's you. Right? Just saying, in case you didn't make the connection. Simple, not simple-minded. So he has me doing these preemptive strikes. Why? Because you're, you need it, obviously. I mean, if everybody was, I suppose, perfectly fine, maybe he'd say, let's move on to something else. But no. <laughs> Are you sure about this? Have you read... So, he's got me on these preemptive strikes in order to cut you off at the pass. Why? To protect you from your own flesh's desire to overcomplicate things. What do you think I'm doing? I could be riding my motorcycle right now. Oh, yeah. No. You guys. I'm just kidding. Why does he do it? To protect you. I'm not trying to be creative. I'm not trying to be... Novel? 
I'm not trying to be anything but love you and protect you because these are the things that I see going on in the world, in this congregation. And I don't care if you're offended. Half the time, more than half the time. Most of the time, you all don't know what the heck's going on. I do. You don't even know what's going on in your own life. You say, ah, how can you dare say that? I dare say it. Because that's what he reveals to me. It's called discernment. It's part of the spiritual gift. You can say whatever you want about it. You can sit there and, that's not true. That's not true. How would you know? You don't have the gift. Oh, oh. well, you're just making it up then. Because it's good for you. Yeah, because that's what I do. I make stuff up to make my life complicated. Jeez, people. Anyways. So these things are done to protect you, you, you from yourselves, really, from your flesh's desire to overcomplicate things. For example, some have argued that the Bible is more complicated than it is. Really, it's that it's not just about the gospel proper, so to speak, and that everything is tied to it, and that this animal called spiritual maturity is found by discovering all of the little so-called corner cases and mastering even original languages or something like that. Well, tell that to Jesus, who consistently warned his disciples of what true faith looked like, and it wasn't like the Pharisees. He despised the Pharisees. And it's no different than today. What we have today, then, is a comedy of errors being amplified year after year. This is what's going on. I mean, I'm a technologist. I have a degree in engineering. I love technology. Love it. But it's a double-edged sword. Because you get the flesh taking advantage of it. Instead of standing on the shoulders of the Bible and Jesus Christ, you got men standing on top of men's shoulders, and then men standing on their shoulders, and men standing on their shoulders, and this whole thing. And next thing you know, the guy at the top doesn't know what the heck he's standing on. So what we have is a comedy of errors being amplified year after year, where otherwise well-intentioned so-called scholars have taken previously overcomplicated doctrines and made them all but unlearnable by adding to them. Not the least of reasons that many of them are man-made. I, I can't even tell you how many man-made doctrines I've, got, I've read. I'm like, where the heck is that? You just made that up. For what reason? I don't know. The only thing I come up with is it's pharisaical. Why did Pharisees make up almost 400 extra laws or ordinances? Why? Because they could and people listened to them. Because they're, you know what that is? No? (laughs) Ah. But yet, here we have Scripture. Imagine that, Scripture. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Okay. 1 Corinthians 2, 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct them, but we have the mind of Christ. Okay. So to set the record straight here and now, based on scriptural revelation, we might say this to those who cling to this monstrosity called spiritual maturity, and there's nothing wrong with the phrase if you get it right, but people tend not to have it right. Doctrines don't mature, people do. The church isn't responsible for seeing to it that Christ's doctrines are 
quote, matured, whatever that might mean. His doctrines pre-existed humanity. That's why I just gave you that Hebrews 13.8. His mind, his word, he pre-existed humanity. John 1.1. 1, 1. Paul and the other apostles wrote about confirming and defending the gospel, Philippians 1.7, not maturing it somehow. There are certain things that happen as we grow up in Christ. That's a fact. We might be more apt to defend the gospel. We might be more apt to evangelize with the gospel. But we're not to, Deuteronomy 4.2, add or subtract to the word of God. Like so many have. And the flesh is like, yeah, give me more, give me more, give me more. Paul and the other apostles wrote about confirming and defending the gospel, not maturing it somehow, or suggesting their disciples, quote, progress it further through determination or striving. Consider also, and i got to pick a spot here, consider also that Jesus had to fight with the fleshes of his disciples. For as Scripture reveals on multiple occasions, they were, they were preoccupied with silly things like, who's the greatest? You don't think that's ever happened in this congregation before? You seriously don't think that's happened in this congregation at some level? I remember one time a, a contractor came in here and DJ was like, I'm better than him. <laughs> we had to have a little talk, you know. He's like, I'm so better than him. Look at I got three hammers, he's got two. Right? <laughs> that never happened, by the way. If I use real examples, then I get hate mail. So I have to use false examples that make you all laugh at somebody else's expense, of course. You know, they said things like, who's the greatest? Seriously? So you get the Messiah walking with you, about to be crucified, and you're like, hey, I wonder who's the greatest. So Jesus would have to flip their perspectives 180 degrees. Go to Luke 22, 26. I promise I'm going to pick a spot here. Eventually. I'm only halfway through my notes, maybe a little bit more. I won't keep you much longer. Luke twenty-two twenty-six. So, Jesus used to have to flip their perspectives back to his own, which was literally 180 degrees, because if they were preoccupied with who's the greatest, they're missing the entire point. Luke twenty-two twenty-six. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. Now, that's what maturity looks like. The more mature you are, the more you are like a servant. How have I taught you that? To me, leadership, even in a congregation, is like an upside-down triangle. Anytime I was in industry, it was always this way. And the, like the guy was at the top with all the, you know, wow, look at, oh, my God, oh. It should have been upside-down. The more of a leader you are, the more of a servant you are. And you're supporting more people, not lording over them. And that's what he tried to teach them. That takes more humility to serve than it is to lord. That's why good leaders, good husbands in the homes love their wives. They don't exacerbate their children. That's what makes a good leader. Someone who's there to say, I'm going to try to support your spiritual growth. Now, the wife and the children may not like it all the time, but that's a different story. But nonetheless, a servant's heart says, I'm going to do this thing. 
Want to hear a funny story? You guys are like, just let us out. <laughs> nope. Brian's like, I'm serious. There was, a, there was a special on ESPN the other day on Allen Iverson. I don't know if you know who that guy is. He's a famous basketball player. He had the worst upbringing. I mean, it was horrible. Horrible. He had thrown in jail unfair. It was horrible, right? Nobody loved him. That's what he, that's what figured, that's what he figured out. He never knew his dad. And then his mom was like a mess. And he was like, you know, inner city kid, broke. So I think it was his coach. One of his coaches took him in, and he started getting, he was always in trouble, you know, at school, in high school, just about to get expelled, this kind of thing, right? Finally, this guy, he says, took him and threw him on the hood of his car, cracking the windshield. And Iverson goes, that's when I knew he loved me. Because he, I knew that he was willing to contend with me to the degree where he was physically going to wound me and throw me up on the hood of a car. And to him, in his language, in his primal situation, he saw love. And he was right. And he was right. And sometimes that's what you've got to do when you're a leader. Sometimes you have to discipline. I have to do it all the time from the pulpit. I have to do it even as a, I hate to say it, as a husband and definitely as a father. I have to lay the lawn down from time to time. And the people I'm doing it with, just like you sometimes, don't like it very much. Joey's like, yep, didn't like that. Sean's like, nope, don't like it all. <laughs> Tammy over here, she's like, yeah, it's not fun. So that's the way it is, though. But that's what a true servant does. Read about the hired hand. Jesus says, these are my sheep. Read about the hired hand in that account. What does the hired hand do when the pressure comes on? They leave the sheep. Jesus says, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to whack you upside the head if necessary. I'm also going to coddle you when appropriate, because I love you. And that's what true love looks like. True love doesn't run away. It may discipline, but it doesn't run away from its responsibilities. That's what it means to be a servant of Christ. And the only way you're going to discern those, we learned this this past week, the only way you're going to discern those things and administer those things is if you have the love of God. Otherwise, you're going to be like every horrible parent out there who then wonders, why are my kids idiots? Because you stunk as a parent. You didn't lead. You didn't discipline them. You didn't even teach them the Word of God. And I'm not trying to offend anybody. Oh, my God. Oh. Today's today, right? Move forward then. You know what I'm saying? Anyways. Let me give you this, and I'll close. I swear, I have a nice video, if that helps. Uplifting. Maturity. Maturity in Jesus' mind was opposite from his disciples' mind. There are multiple examples of Jesus having to readjust his disciples. That's what maturity looks like. Maturity is about being a servant. Maturity is about understanding more and more the love of God.
It's not about doing more or being more religious or impressing people. It's about having these base qualities in your life. The rest will happen. That's why you don't strive to be spiritually mature. The one who's striving shows themselves a sophomore, a wise moron. The one who says, God, just change me. If this is your thing, change me. And he says, get out of the way. And you say, okay, I'll get out of the way. Next thing you know, you're sanctified. That's maturity, which is a twist for a lot of people. And then I'll give you this last thing, the application principle. The most mature people in any church are the greatest servants, Mark 10.45. So, look at your own heart and your desire to serve others rather than self. Consider your deeds even. Then you'll have an idea of what maturity. If you're that worried about spiritual maturity, if it still haunts you, look at it that way. Say, what is my desire right now to serve? Am I just serving myself? Am I mostly overrun by the flesh's temptations to self-serve? Or do I really have a heart for Christ? Has my heart been progressively sanctified? Even more so, which means really getting out of the way because a new creature is already what it needs to be. Anyways. Yeah, I think I'll end there. I'll show you a nice video. It may seem disjoint because it was supposed to come at the end of the lesson, but... I think it's just, I'll say this, that this summer the family and I got to go to Colorado and uh, go up Pikes Peak, and it was magnificent. That's all I can say. And God spoke to us in volumes. And like the little flower that Sophie ate this morning, my dog tried to eat this morning, like growing up in Christ by grace, the simplicity of it. God didn't make things. He didn't even make knowing Him difficult. He made it very easy, as a matter of fact. And He starts with, as Romans 1 says, His own creation. So with that said, get the lights, guys.
this morning's message such a wonderful time to worship you through the study of your word for a place where like-minded believers are able to gather in solitude and for a local assembly that facilitates it we are so very grateful to you for ordaining your spirit's ministry in our lives for this world is utterly antagonistic to your children the same way it was with your son our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Even he stated, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Thank you, Father, for revealing to us the truth about the condition of this world and how the God of it, Satan, has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. We pray, Father, that those of this congregation who weren't able to be here this morning, that they too are able to hear this message. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, that we do pray. Amen. Thank you.